You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of October 19th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Pumpkin Festival. A new celebration is born at the first annual Arvada Pumpkin Festival by Joe Davis for the Arvada Transcript. Lakewood residents protest Belmar Park development. Council to discuss further October 23rd. Resident chains herself to a tree on Cider Day. Council member Springsteen moves to review development by Riley Dunn for the Jeffco transcript. For the Arvada Press. South Golden Fire Station now fully staffed 24 7. After remodeling projects, City rededicates Station 24 for its 40th anniversary by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. A new celebration is born at the first annual Arvada Pumpkin Festival by Joe Davis. Families, kids, couples, pets, and more came out to the Arvada Community Gardens October 14th for the first ever Arvada Pumpkin Festival to enjoy cider, snacks, giant pumpkin, and squash contests, and more. Arvada Community Gardens President Heather Fiedler Fiedler created the first annual Arvada Pumpkin Festival. The community gardens survive on donations, produce sales, and other fundraising activities, One of those is the Arvada Festival of Scarecrows. We've been part of the Festival of Scarecrows for many, many years, Holland said. Then when it got canceled this year, we weren't sure what we would do because it was a big fundraiser for the community garden. So Heather decided that maybe we could hold our own festival here for the part that we used to do at Scarecrow. We went ahead and did that. The gardens needed a way to recoup the potential loss of funding from the festival, so the group decided to move the fall festivities to their own space for an event on October 14th. We just brought them all up here, Holland explained, gesturing to the space where the festival tents were located. We did some advertising. We invited everybody we could think of. We've got some donations. We're selling stuff. It's really working out. Holland said the city of Arvada was very supportive as well. Several people in the community worked to get the word out. This operation was last minute due to a mix-up with the Festival of Scarecrows. Evidently, they applied too late for the day, and somebody else had already taken it, Holland said. He and the team at the gardens were fortunately more flexible. We don't need a permit to do anything in our own garden. We can just do it. We had about two months to organize it, and boy, it worked out. Volunteers came to help out, and some brought snacks and even hot cider, which were handed out free to the public. 
However, Holland said had his reservations about the first festival being a success. Those fears were soon put to rest. The gardens and the festival space were packed with attendees. It's just beyond our expectations for success, Holland said. A lot of people were lined up at 9.45 this morning waiting to get in here. We're really happy with the way it has turned out. And we'll see how the receipts come out at the end of the day. The festival will help defer a lot of our expenses that we have to operate the garden. At the end of the festival, the winners of the squash and pumpkin contests were announced. The biggest pumpkins and squash grown in the gardens competed for prizes that included cash and gift certificates. The winners. Giant Squash Contest. Dan Applehans won first prize with a 32.6-pound Blue Hubbard squash. Sue Fisher took second place with a 6.2-pound butternut squash. Marianne Cox was in third with a 4.6-pound striped zucchini squash. Kubrick Newcomb came in fourth place with a 3.6-pound zucchini squash. Giant Pumpkin Contest. Alex Burns won with his 36.2-pound pumpkin. Lanny Sims took second place with 33-pound pumpkin. Kubrick Newbrick, Newcomb was third with his 29-pound pumpkin. Lynn Miller took fourth place with an 11.6-pound pumpkin. Caitlin Cox was in fifth place with her 5.6-pound pumpkin. Quote, we just can't believe the support we got from the community to come to this event. Holland said, you know, it's the first year we've ever had it, so I don't think we're going to go back to Scarecrow. I think we're just going to hold our own event here. For more information on the Arvada Gardens, which are open to the public, visit ArvadaGardeners.org. Lakewood residents protest Belmar Park Development Council to discuss further on October 23rd. Resident chains herself to a, to a tree on Cider Day. Council member Springsteen moves to review development by Riley Dunn. Tensions around the possible development of a property at 777 South Yarrow Street are mounting in Lakewood as one resident chained herself to a tree and dozens more gave public comment at a city council meeting to voice their opposition to the planned 412-unit development. The land is owned by Karoy Residential and is currently under administrative review by the city. The developer's current proposal for the sites, which borders Belmar Park, calls for the removal of 69 trees, an issue that has stoked strong reactions from residents. Lakewood City Council member Anita Springsteen said that after residents attended the October 9th City Council meeting to voice concerns, she has moved that council take up the topic again at their October 23rd business meeting. Many are very concerned about the will unwillingness of council to push back on developers who want to rape our environment and wildlife, Springsteen said in an email. Many wonder why we can't preserve the last vestiges of nature in this now bustling concrete jungle of Lakewood that used to be a respite from the big city. The aforementioned concerns seem to reach a fever pitch at the Cider Festival on October 7th when resident Lorraine Springer chained herself to a tree in protest of the proposed development. 
I'm sounding an alarm to friends and neighbors to speak out against Lakewood's short-sighted, unconscionable approach to development, Springer said. Lakewood Public Information Manager Stacy Olton said Springsteen's motion to add discussing the development to the October 23rd meeting will be put on the agenda as a general business item. If council reaches consensus, then the development may be considered at that meeting or a future meeting. Councilmember Springsteen has asked for a general business item to be put on the agenda for 777 Yarrow, Olton said. Council will then discuss that and they have to reach a consensus, and then the item about 777 Yarrow may be considered at that meeting or put on a future agenda. Springsteen said the issue represents a larger problem regarding Council's handling of large developments. I believe that Belmar Park may be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of what citizens are willing to swallow from local and state government and big-money developers who never seem to be building affordable housing as they destroy our open space. Springsteen said, People uniformly love Belmar Park. Lakewood resident Steve Farthing said that the development also poses a concern for many of the bird species that occupy the park. Birds are disappearing rapidly at Belmar Park, Farthing said. This is a crisis situation. Allowing critical tree canopy habitat to be destroyed will only fee-in-lieu payments will exacerbate the situation. Springsteen echoed Farthing's concerns about the park's bird population, calling the park, quote, a unique place to birdwatch. South Golden Fire Station now fully staffed 24-7. After remodeling projects, City rededicates Station 24 for its 40th anniversary. By Corinne Westman. Before Golden Fire Station 24's ribbon cutting and open house on October 11th, the Golden Firefighters posted there had already been called out twice that morning. And as the open house was winding down, they were called out again to a situation on West Colfax Avenue. That's exactly why the Golden Fire Department wanted to celebrate Station 24's rededication. It's now fully staffed 24-7, allowing GFD to respond to calls faster and more efficiently. The station along Heritage Road near Colfax Avenue, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this fall, has been staffed sporadically with volunteers since it opened. However, GFD and city officials saw the need to have it staffed full-time with the mix of volunteer and career firefighters, Chief Casey Bill explained. The city re- recently remodeled the station to improve the bedrooms, bathrooms, and other amenities for $300,000 total. And the department received federal grants to hire additional firefighters. Beale said the SAFER grants expire in March 2026, but it gives Golden time to find its own funding mechanism to maintain the staffing levels if it wishes to do so. Beale and Mayor Laura Weinberg said they were excited to have 24-7-365 staffing at the South Golden Station which officially started on October 1st. They said the nearby residents, businesses, and visitors will see faster response times. Calls in city limits are about 50-50 between the northern half and the southern half, Beale stated, adding that the dividing line is around 24th Street. 
The southern half of Golden includes a stretch of Interstate 70, the West Colfax Avenue corridor, the aggregate quarry, several city and county parks, shopping centers, office parks, and residential areas. It's also considered part of the wildland urban interface. Weinberg remarked how much South Golden has changed since Station 24 opened in 1983, including recent and ongoing developments. So, having a fully staffed fire station there means GFD can respond to more calls more quickly. Bill estimated that within city limits, about 30% of GFD's calls happen simultaneously. With full-staffed stations in downtown and South Golden, the department can respond to, stim- to simula- simultaneous calls much better now, he said. Golden also has a dual response agreement with Pleasant View Fire Department for I-70 calls, Beal and Lieutenant Alan Johnson described. With Station 24 fully staffed, Golden can back up Pleasant View and reciprocate on calls much more now, they said. Johnson described how when firefighters are called out to a scene that's very spread out, such as a large business, or to a situation that can escalate quickly, it's safer to have more than one crew respond. Here to help. Johnson, who's now posted at Station 24, said having it fully staffed sooner would have been helpful on several major calls, such as the 2019 structure fire in Golden Terrace Mobile Home Park, and last October's incident at the Rock Rest Lodge. He even pointed out how the night before the rededication ceremony, the crew responded to a cardiac arrest call very close to Station 24. The response time was much faster than it would have been responding from Station 21 in downtown Golden, which can make all the difference in life-and-death situations, Johnson continued. Matt Murphy a volunteer firefighter who lives in the adjacent Heritage Dells neighborhood, hoped these staffing levels would help make Golden safer and its community members healthier. We're always here to help when someone's having a, probably, the worst day of their lives, Murphy said. He described how there's a strong sense of community pride for the department, its volunteers, and its staff. And GFD's personal re- personnel reciprocate that pride in their community. He encouraged his fellow Goldenites to consider volunteering for the fire department. It's a great way to show you love the community. Whether people want to learn more about the department or just want to see the newly rededicated station, Johnson said Goldenites are more than welcome to stop by Station 24 anytime. Stores are always open to the public, and the firefighters are happy to give tours to people of all ages. This is Golden Station, Johnson continued. And we're excited to show it off. Jeffco School Board Candidates Address District's Critical Needs by Susie Glassman, special to Colorado Community Media. With ballots set to hit Jefferson County mailboxes soon, the five candidates running for two open board school board seats are busy letting the public know where they stand on the district's critical issues like declining enrollment, teacher pay, student achievement, and budget shortfalls. Michelle Applegates and Thomas Wick are vying for the District 3 seat, which covers portions of Wheat Ridge, Charvada, and northern Lakewood and stretches of northwest to the Gilpin County line. Incumbent Stephanie Shuley is not running for re-election. Amara Hildebrand, Aaron Kenworthy, 
and Joel Newton are running for the open District 4 seats, which includes Edgewater and Central and Southern Lakewood. Incumbent Susan Miller also chose not to run for re-election. The Jefferson County Education Association endorsed Applegate and Kenworthy as leaders who will, quote, do what it takes to give our students, educators, and community members the best public school experience possible. Wick and Hildebrand have the support of the Jefferson County Republican Party, which believes they will, quote, stand up for your children and family in these difficult and confusing times. School board candidates are elected at large, meaning Jeffco voters can vote for both districts, regardless of where they live. Yet, the elected directors represent constituents in the district in which they reside. School board races are nonpartisan, yet after voters recalled a conservative board in 2015, they've consistently voted for members backed by the teachers' union. This year's race won't change the majority, but will add diverse new perspectives. About the District 3 candidates. Michelle Applegate is a mom to three children in Jeffco schools and the PTA president at Stober Elementary. She calls herself a lifelong public educator supporter whose top three priorities are ensuring Jeffco has strong, thriving public schools, making safety a part of the student experience, and building trust through budget transparency. Applegate said that if elected, she would start with the student achievement by replicating what's working across the district and understanding what students, families, teachers, and the community need. She also plans to use her work experience as an engineer to enhance collaboration among district stakeholders and that parent engagement, feedback, and hearing from the community are essential to making informed decisions. She said the board needs to consider more than salaries when recruiting, compensating, and retaining its teachers. Enhanced benefits, additional prep time, and mental health services could show how much the district values its educators. Regarding student achievement, she said education and success amounts to more than standardized test scores and want to look at the impact of things like art and PE and understand the unique learning that happens in all the different schools. Quote, I believe engagement and honesty, honestly listening to people and letting that be a part of the data that's coming in is truly important, said Applegates in response to school closure decisions. Thomas Wick is the father of a Jeffco freshman and two graduates. His wife teaches at Drake Middle School and he serves as the Aurora Campus President of Concord Career College. He says he is also a champion of public education and believes the school board needs to clear the way for educators to do their jobs effectively. Wick's priorities are to restore trust between parents and educators in the district through transparent, open, and proactive communication, address budget challenges, and improve student achievement. Wick says he'll use his experience managing the bottom line of a for-profit college to manage the district's $1.4 billion budget and deal with monetary challenges to come. I've heard of the reason we're losing staff isn't necessarily because of the bottom line of money. Although that is an element that I'm very interested and concerned with. We need to keep our teachers because they enjoy what they're doing and feel like they're teaching. I've heard stories of teachers not having support for discipline in the classroom, he said. 
Wick believes in listening to opposing views and understands there will be disagreements, especially when making hard decisions about school closures and budget choices. Our parents need to understand the decision being made so we can trust one another and move past the contention and division. About the District 4 candidates. Amara Hildebrand has two children, one in a public school and the other in a private school. She attributes her education as the factor that led her family out of poverty and believes in giving back to the community. She says she is running for a school board seat because education is the path to success and every child deserves the opportunity to thrive. Hildebrand believes in financially incentivizing teachers whose students show academic achievement and that some capital improvements are wants, not needs, meaning the district's budget could be better managed to support teachers. While she has dealt with her own addiction issues in the past, she doesn't believe schools need more counselors, but that kids should get off their devices and devote time to community service projects. We all have perspectives based on our experiences, and no one is right or wrong, she said. We need to listen, respect each other, and keep our students in the middle. Aaron Kenworthy is a former public school teacher who comes from a long line of teachers. She left her public school teaching role because she couldn't afford to live and work in the community where she taught. But she continues to teach in other roles. Kenworthy says schools are there to meet students where they are and support their needs and interests. From apprenticeships to career and college readiness, the district must attract and retain highly qualified educators with competitive pay to accomplish that goal. As a former educator, it's imperative that we treat our educational professionals as professionals. They drive fair compensation in healthy, safe, supportive, and balanced work environments. Kenworthy said. It's also important to her that educators learn culturally relevant, trauma-informed practices in approaching students who may be responding to a situation or stimuli based on things they have not experienced in that school or are not immediately attached to that situation. Joel Newton has lived in Jeffco for 18 years and believes he has a responsibility to make the community better. He started Edgewater Collective to support local Title I schools to build community partnerships so those students, families, and educators have what they need to succeed. We can't sugarcoat tough decisions, and we need to educate the community about our priorities, he said. The budget priority process starts at the schools. These conversations have to start in December, and we need to keep what's best for our students at the center. To solve some of the issues around the cost of living in Jeffco, Newton suggested looking for community partnerships for low-cost housing opportunities and other creative solutions for the district staff to live and work in the community. With education, there are a lot of things we can disagree on, neighborhood versus charter schools or whatever it might be, said Newton, quote, but I'm firmly committed to listening and seeking to understand where every stakeholder in Jeffco is coming from, because as we do that as a board, we find the common good. Explore the mysteries of the Ice Ages at DMNS. Coming attractions. Clark Reader. There's just something so fascinating about the Ice Age. 
its world so foreign and so familiar at the same time. Visitors to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science 2001 Colorado Boulevard can explore that far-off time with the new exhibits, Mysteries of the Ice Ages, which opens on Friday, October 20th. This area of study is special in how multi-generational it can become. Young kids explore learning about megafauna animals while adults learn about the glaciation that forms the Ice Ages, wrote Emily Doherty, educator for Mysteries of the Ice Ages, in an email interview. This exhibit has something for everyone in, it, in that it has many amazing specimens that are engaging to look at and deeper content explanations for those that want to learn something new about how we interact with ice on our planet. We interviewed Dowerty about the ex exhibit, the museum's connection to the discoveries on display, and what visitors will come away with. Interview edited for brevity and clarity. Tell me about the genesis of Mysteries of the Ice Ages. This exhibit is coming to us from the Canadian Museum of Nature. They created this exhibit for their own museum, and it has now become a traveling exhibition. We are the first place that it is traveling to. What personal touches has the DMNS added to help connect with local audiences? We have two car two facilitated carts where guests can interact with a volunteer and explore Neanderthal traits, as well as Ice Age animal adaptations. We also have added many Colorado-specific enhancements, focusing on topics of seasonal fat, winter recreation, local legends of the Folsom site, white-tailed jackrabbits, Colorado wildfires, mountain glaciers, and of course, our snow mass discovery of Ice Age specimens in 2010. This is of such importance because it's one of the largest discoveries and projects the museum has led. I also believe guests will enjoy making a personal connection to the exhibit by exploring how they interact with ice in so many different ways in their own lives. What do you hope people come away from the exhibit with? I hope people will come away from this exhibit with a deeper understanding and excitement about around how we as humans interact with our environment, specifically with ice and cold environments. Tickets and information can be found at dmns.org slash visit slash exhibition slash mysteries dash of dash the dash ice ages. Spending a creepy evening at the Victorian death experiences. Getting one's mind wrapped around the idea of death has never been an easy proposition. And the people of the Victorian era spent a great deal of time and energy exploring the great beyond. Now, the Center for Colorado Women's History, 1310 Bannock Street in Denver, is talk taking visitors back to the era with its new Victorian death experiences, which runs through Friday, November 3rd. According to provided information, this adult-themed features a tour of the Victorian home, which will be decorated for mourning. It will allow visitors to peruse grisly artifacts, hair-raising rooms, and stories of death's presence in Denver. Attendees will get historical context and learn about how the people of the era viewed death and what happens next. Get information and tickets at historycolorado.org slash victorian dash death dash experiences.
Phoebe Robinson gets brilliantly messy in Boulder. If you've ever listened to an episode of the podcast Two Dope Queens, caught an episode of Everything's Trash, or seen her appearances on any number of late night shows, then you know Phoebe Robinson is one of the funniest people alive. Her laugh is absolutely infectious and her sense of humor is so funny and insightful that I defy anyone to engage with her work and not come away grinning like an idiot. Robinson is bringing her messy AF comedy tour to the Boulder Theater, 2032 14th Street at 8 p.m. on Friday, October 20th. This is going to be a full night of laughs, so be sure to get tickets at Ticketmaster.com. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Rat Boys at the Globe Hall. Chicago's Rat Boys make indie rock in the best sense of the term. There's no pretension here, just thoughtful tunes that rock and shimmer at the same time. Their latest album, The Window, isn't just the group's best release to date, but easily one of the year's best. Working with Chris Walla, formerly of Death Cab for Cutie, the group has found a new groove that fits like a glove. It's got elements of their forebearers like Wilco, but everything feels thrillingly alive and lived in. In support of the album, Rat Boys will be performing at the Globe Hall, 4483 Logan Street in Denver at 8 p.m. on Saturday, October 21st. They'll be joined by indie upstarts, another Michael. Get tickets at globehall.com. Clark Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading Remembering Colorado Arts Titan, Actor, Playwright, and Director Ken Grimes by Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And A New Team Will Help DPS Students Cope with Trauma by Kevin Beattie. From Westward, I'll be reading How New KUVO Program Director Shane German Hopes to Move Past Station Controversies by Michael Roberts. And Mayor's House 1000 Plan Makes Concrete Progress Picks Up Federal Liaison by Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Remembering Colorado Arts Titan, Actor, Playwright, and Director Ken Grimes by Chandra Thomas Whitfield. Denver's art community is mourning the loss of playwright, director, and actor Ken Grimes. A fixture in Denver's art scene, Grimes had written, directed, and acted in dozens of plays since he was a teenager. He died of ALS last week at the age of 74. Ken was one of the greatest, and he was around for such a long time, it's still hard for me to put it in past tense, said longtime friend and collaborator Kajia Haynes, co-founder of the Colorado Black Arts Movement, during an interview on Colorado Matters. For decades, committed and always, always advocating for the arts, and even in the face of so many people saying no, it was Ken with his exceptional sense of humor and one of the most beautiful smiles ever gifted to a human being, 
He would just smile and nod his head and keep on going and do it and do it beautifully. Haynes described Grimes as a consummate artist who was deeply committed to his craft. In the time of production, he was most focused on the quality of the production, whatever it was, whether he was doing a historical presentation at the Denver Black Arts Festival, whether he was performing on stage, whether he was writing a play, whether he was directing, that was the single most focus that he had was in the artistic quality, she said. Grimes would work hard equally at ensuring that the audience experience at his productions was top-notch, she said. Some of his career highlights include facilitating the Humboldt Writers Group in writing a production that was performed in Denver and also workshopped off-Broadway in New York City. The musical Uncle Jed's Barbershop, Haynes said, was a dream come true for Grimes. He put a lot of his own money behind this production, she said. He had a philosophy that if it was worth doing, it was worth him not only spending his time, but his resources and his talent in getting something done. Haynes says she hopes as Denver's black art movements gained traction, the musical could be revived and returned to the stage in Denver in tribute to Grimes. An article in the Denver Urban Spectrum newspaper noted that in high school, Grimes had received a $500 grant to produce a play he had written called Ride the Rugged Seas that ultimately played at the Lincoln Park housing projects. He enlisted his friends as actors and used the grant to buy items for the audience, including popcorn. Haynes said she was not familiar with the story, but she described it as so kin, with a chuckle, adding that he dedicated countless hours to helping support so many in Colorado's extended arts community. He worked with so many young artists and older artists and just helped to mentor them, to bring them along and give them a sense of confidence and calmness that really allowed artists to be all that they could possibly be in an interaction with him. Memorial plans for Grimes have not yet been announced. A new team will help DPS students cope with trauma by Kevin Beattie. When a crowd of shaken and crying students poured out of East High School last March, there weren't many professionals around to make sure they processed this fresh trauma in a healthy way. Two administrators had been shot by a student, and it had only been weeks since one of their classmates was shot in his car near campus. Though 19 of Denver Public Schools' campuses have Denver health clinics with counselors embedded within them, it was obvious after these episodes that the district needed more help. It seemed clear that we needed a whole team to be able to do that, Dr. Sonia O'Leary, a pediatrician who's led Denver Health's school-based clinics for a decade, said about that realization. For the last couple of years, our adolescents have been suffering for anxiety and depression at levels that we've never seen before. We've also had to think outside the box. On Thursday, Denver Health and DPS announced they'd won $1.7 million from the Caring for Denver Foundation to build that new team. They're calling it the Therapeutic Response and Urgent Stabilization Team, or TRUST, which will comprise of three therapists, one psychiatrist, and two care coordinators. It will be out of the box in that trust will be flexible. They can rush to a scene like the one outside of East High last spring, or take up residence in a school dealing with less emergent problems. Not only do they respond to big emergencies, what happened at East High School, but also traumatic events like the death or the suicide of a student, O'Leary told us. It should be able to shift and move depending on the need. 
One reason mental health care must be flexible, she added, is that it may be impractical to install counselors on every DPS campus. We'd love to have mental health providers at every school, like three of them, but there's not always space. And remembering that schools are places of education, we have to honor that. So this is a way to do things a little bit differently, she said. The Caring for Denver grant will also fund permanent therapist positions in three schools, Manuel High School, Lincoln High School, and Kepner Middle School. For one DPS parent, a leader of a movement to address violence in schools, Trust's creation is welcome news, but not a panacea. Six months after East High's administrators were shot on campus, Steve Casaros and a handful of fellow DPS parents met outside the school to remind their community they still had work to do on school safety. They released six doves, each representing someone affected by gun violence at the school. Though a school board election loomed, Katsaros and his colleagues from the Parents Safety Advocacy Group said their message was not about who was running for office. Instead, they just wanted to pressure anyone in power to reform the district's safety protocols. Safety is something that's hard to put your finger on, he told us after the birds disappeared into the sky. I can just tell you that seeing the impact of it is when students are thriving. And DPS hasn't even gotten to the point of talking about student outcomes. They're so locked up in their own petty politics. When we told him about trust this week, Katsaros responded with a positive, if some not somewhat cynical, take. I view this as good news. At least they're doing something, he told us. Apparently, the Board of Education and DPS's administration have resigned to the fact that violence is going to be present and we applaud their decision in partnering with other city entities to find a solution to help kids in trauma. He reiterated that his group wants to see more violence prevention. While he acknowledged the causes of gun violence stretch beyond a school board's purview, he said the district has opportunities to do more. In particular, he hopes administrators might move potentially dangerous students into schools that specialize in treating mental health issues before things come to a head a policy that the district has resisted. His group is also pushing for a revival of Denver's City School Coordinating Committee, a defunct group that formally weighed in on district issues before it was abandoned by Mayor Michael Hancock's administration. The bottom line is DPS really needs to be proactive and ready for these extreme violent episodes because they're going to continue based on the discipline policy, he said. If they're going to deny that they have some role in mitigating and stopping it, then they've got to be there to help kids with the emotional side. Dr. O'Leary says she's thinking about the bigger picture too. While she and her colleagues can only impact one piece of this puzzle, they're happy they can pitch in where they're needed. And outside of emergencies, they'll do what they can to keep kids happy and thriving. You need all of it. You need better gun control. You need safety in schools. You need mental health resources for when these things do happen, she said. I hope nothing like what happened at East happens again. But if it does, we're there. And even if not, we're going to be busy regardless. The following articles are from Westward. How new KUVO program director Shane German hopes to move past station controversies by Michael Roberts. Shane German's new gig as program director of KUVO is as challenging as a saxophone solo by Ornette Coleman, 
and the issues are more than a year in the making. The public radio station at 89.3 FM debuted in Denver in 1985. Since then, it's specialized in presenting the sort of jazz music that's become increasingly scarce on the airwaves, while also celebrating community broadcasting and highlighting cultures unique to the Mile High City. But in 2022, a significant slice of the listenership expressed extreme displeasure over changes at the outlet, including the departure of four longtime hosts, Rodney Franks, Susan Gatchett, Matthew Goldwasser, and Janine Santana, and their perception that the music mix at The Signal, which had leaned heavily on the work at, of jazz giants, was being watered down in a revenue-driven quest for a younger audience. Then-program director Max Ramirez, who was closely linked to these moves, left KUVO in April, with general manager Nikki Swarn filling the post on an interim basis during the search for a successor, and German is certainly an intriguing choice. He's not exactly a jazz lifer, and he's only worked in radio since 2015, but his previous efforts as an advocate for musicians on both the national and local levels as well as his dedication to sonic diversity, connects with the station's traditions. Moreover, he appears to have little interest in giving additional jolts to an operation that's gone through more than its share of shakeups lately. KUVO has a nearly 40-year history in the Denver metro area and such a strong foundation, German says. I want to build on that foundation, not to lift out the foundation and start over. Although German, 48, was born in Kansas City, Missouri, he jokes that he's not really from anywhere. My dad was in the Navy, and we moved to different military bases or shipyards every three years, so I'm a military brat. I lived in North Carolina, South Carolina, San Diego, and Long Beach, California, and Virginia. His first job after graduating from high school during the mid-1990s was in Richmond, Virginia, where he landed a job at a branch of Tower Records. Before long, I became obsessed with music and realized I could make a career in the music industry, he says. At Tower, German worked his way up to the position of singles buyer, which he describes as a crash course in how the music industry worked on the retail side. From there, he shifted to Circuit City and purchased products for approximately 400 stores nationwide. Then, in 2004, German hooked up with Sound Exchange, which he calls a performance rights organization that was set up by the U.S. Copyright Office. By then, music was starting to go digital through Pandora, Sirius XM, and Internet radio services. The office set up Sound Exchange to collect and distribute performance royalties on behalf of recording artists and whoever owned master recordings, so they would get royalties whenever their work was on one of these non-interactive services straight-up streamers that choose what to play as opposed to operations such as Spotify where users pick the tunes they'd like to hear. Prior to this period, artists who didn't write their own material German offers Aretha Franklin and Tony Bennett as examples weren't usually eligible for royalties and neither were scads of lesser-known singers and players. I would get a list of artists who had uncollected royalties and reach out to them or their estates to find out who was responsible for paying these things, he explains. I'd go to places like South by Southwest and go up to people at showcases and say, I've got $8,000 for you, and here's my card. A lot of them would say, yeah, right, get out of here. But then they'd do their research and call to say, 
I met you at South by Southwest, and you said I had some royalties waiting for me. What do I have to do to collect them? And I'd get their accounts set up in our system so that they could. His stint with Sound Exchange brought it with it opportunities beyond giving musicians long-delayed recognition in cash. For instance, he served two years on the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences Board of Governors in D.C., and also got a chance to vote for the Grammys. But in 2012, he moved to New York City and signed up with Believe, a firm that helped develop digital marketing campaigns for record labels, many of them based in Europe. Three years later, in 2015, German jumped again, this time to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where a lot of his family had relocated. There, he got involved with WYCE, a community radio station, starting as a volunteer and going through the training program like any other novice. But after he earned his own show, he recalls, I let the station manager know I had some music industry background, and he said, We're looking to hire a music operations coordinator. Send me your resume. After I did, he said, You are completely overqualified for this 10-hour-a-week job. And I said, That's okay. I'm really enjoying your mission, and I love the music. By the end of his six years at the station, he was music and programming director. WYCE had an open format, German points out. Our tagline was a world of music, and we played jazz, blues, folk, rock, world beat, Michigan music, and everything in between. That was really where I discovered that there was so much great music out there. Afrobeat, Cuban music, Latin alternative, neo-soul, gospel. It really opened up my musical palette, and it made me realize what a rich musical legacy Michigan has. We honored a lot of Michigan musicians at an award show, and I joined the Michigan Music Alliance. I hosted webinars on how to collect royalties, register your copyrights, learn how to create an LLC, and get tools to take their careers to the next level. His final stop prior to coming to Colorado was Duluth, Minnesota, where he hosted an afternoon drive program on the North 103.3 FM, a station affiliated with the local PBS television affiliate, with which he coordinated special projects such as a documentary about indigenous musicians who wrote songs about the traumatizing boarding schools that many Native Americans were forced to attend. But after just seven months, he saw KUVO's listing for program director and couldn't resist applying. I knew KUVO from when I was at WYCE, he says. I would stream different stations across the country, and I really enjoyed the stuff I heard. When asked about Ramirez, German is cautious. I can't really speak on my predecessor, he maintains. I didn't know him. I do know there were some hiccups, but all I can really say is that I'm looking forward to the future and continuing to serve the community through music curation and passionate hosts. I still hear very diverse music, jazz, Latin alternative, gospel, indigenous music, soul, rhythm, and blues. I don't know what people are missing, but what I'm hearing, I feel, is still true to KUVO. He stresses that I'm a fan of the station, and I love every show I've been listening to. I love the Latin Soul Party, which airs on Fridays from 8 p.m. to midnight. I love the morning set, created by former KUVO president and general manager Carlos Lando. It's heard weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. I'm hearing all kinds of wonderful music, and I think the way the on-air hosts provide music curation to listeners is very valuable. In an age of automation, 
Community radio stations like KUVO are very rare. According to German, he has the simplest of agendas. My main goal when I get to Denver, he's working remotely from Minnesota at present, but expects to be on site as of October 30th, is to do a lot of listening, not just with the staff, but also with the community. I want to know what the community wants, what the community needs. I want to learn the demographics of Denver to see where we have an opportunity to include more diverse voices so all our community members are represented. He's also looking forward to exploring more cross-pollination with Rocky Mountain PBS, with which KUVO merged in 2013. German understands that the situation at KUVO is complex. I want to work together and have an open dialogue about how we can heal and move on, he says. I'm excited to be down there because I love public media and I love KUVO and the passion that the listeners and the longtime staff have, he adds. Hopefully, I'll be welcomed with open arms. Mayor's House 1000 plan makes concrete progress, picks up federal liaison by Benito L. Kelty. Mike Johnston campaigned on a vow to end homelessness, and as mayor, he's been aggressively pushing his plan to house 1,000 homeless individuals in Denver. And House 1000 made some concrete progress this week. Site preparation and construction has already started at two of his 11 proposed micro-communities, city officials confirm, even though one of two locations planned for the Golden Triangle has been nixed. And today, October 18th, Johnston announced that he will also have a fully embedded federal leader in his office, making sure he has direct contact with the White House to get the resources he needs for his plan. We are clear-eyed about the challenges that a community like Denver is facing on this particular issue, Chad Mazel, a special assistant to President Joe Biden, said at a press conference with Johnston. From day one, President Biden has made it a priority to lower housing costs, prevent folks from becoming homeless, and really provide communities with the resources they need to prevent and end homelessness. According to Johnston, the liaison will help bust through these regulatory barriers that the state and federal government have around resources in order to help move housing policies forward. He describes the job as a direct line to the White House to reach out and say, here's what we're trying to do. Can you help? Denver is the seventh community to get a federal liaison through Biden's All Inside program, which is aimed at giving direct federal support to local homeless initiatives. Other places in the program include the cities of Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Seattle, along with Metro Phoenix and the state of California. The federal employee who will join Johnston's team in the next couple of weeks will be with the mayor through the end of 2024. While federal officials say that it's a long-term commitment, Biden is up for re-election that November. The night before the announcement of the federal liaison, Johnston paid a visit to the Montbello neighborhood for a community informational meeting at McGlone Academy. Successors to the town halls Johnston held in all 78 neighborhoods, these meetings provide residents with a last chance to air concerns regarding incoming micro-communities. The meeting, which attracted around 35 residents, focused on the micro-community planned for 12033 East 38th Avenue in the Central Park neighborhood, adjacent to Montbello. The site is the parking lot of what used to be the Stay Inn, which was purchased last year with federal funds for use as housing. 
Johnston and his senior advisor on homeless resolution, Cole Chandler, revealed a few more details about the proposed micro-community. It will be interim use for a maximum of four years on that site that will eventually become long-term supportive housing, said Chandler, who noted that when the motel project is finished, the site will have 95 units. In the meantime, the parking lot will host 54 pallet shelters, which Chandler described as smaller than the micro-sleeping units planned for a site at 1375 Alati Street. It will also have a pair of community spaces where the community can gather, where services will be provided, where staff offices can be. Twelve of the units will be for people with disabilities. The site will also have two pet relief areas, air conditioning, heat, and bathrooms. It includes showers. It includes laundry facilities, Chandler added. The meeting was also an olive branch between Johnston and Councilwoman Chantel Lewis, whose District 8 includes both Montbello and Central Park. Lewis had voiced concern about how Johnston was carrying out the House 1000 plans, saying, I don't think we should be sweeping folks when they don't have anywhere to go. We shouldn't tell people to move along to nowhere, and this is an opportunity for us to not do that, she noted at the meeting. I'll continue to push back on those sweeps because folks have nowhere to go. That aside, Lewis likes the plan for a micro-community and long-term housing in her district. I think it's a really good example in which we are having the short-term use at the micro-communities and at the same time rezoning to have that long-term permanent supportive housing, she said. But as at other community meetings, there was pushback. Niru Jain, who owns the Phillips 66 next door to the site, said she was worried about property values plummeting. Who's going to buy our property with a shelter next to it, Jane asked. Its value is going to go down. Ralph Dockery, who also owns property next to the site, said that he asked Johnston, what if somebody came up, fenced off the property next to you, bulldozed it, and put up 150 homes? How would that affect your property values? Dockery was also concerned that the city bought the hotel and parking lot property for $9 million, even though the previous owners had paid just $3.8 million, which city records confirm. But according to Jeff Olivet, executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, Denver is already moving in the right direction. The urgency with which you've tackled this problem is extraordinary, and we're behind you in this, he told Johnston at today's press conference. Denver gives me hope right now. Dropping the Dime, You Can Use Cash at Denver Performing Arts Complex by Katie Cheshire. Those who like musicals, theater, symphony, ballet, and opera in Denver often head to the Denver Performing Arts Complex, the largest collection of arts venues under one roof in the country. If those same people also like paying with cash, however, things can get a bit tricky. Cash is not exactly king at many venues, but a Colorado law dictates that at public places, there must be a way for customers to conduct cash transactions. In 2021, the state legislature passed a bill requiring retail establishments that offer goods or services to accept United States currency, cash, to purchase the goods or services. Colorado Senator Robert Rodriguez and Representative Alex Valdez 
put forth the retail business must accept cash proposal because they'd noticed many local businesses suspending their acceptance of cash when the COVID-19 pandemic began. Colorado residents who don't have credit cards should be able to patronize every business that anyone else can, Valdez said. People have had credit problems in the past and they can't get bank accounts, he told Westward in August. In some instances, you have immigrant communities that either prefer the cash economy or it's a necessity for them. And you have folks who don't believe that every transaction they want should be tracked. So there's actually a lot of folks that just don't want to share data so openly. Whatever the reason, some people just want to use cash. Here's a guide for how they can do that at the Denver Performing Arts Complex. First, let's clear up a common confusion. The Denver Performing Arts Complex is a 12-acre campus in downtown Denver that includes the Ellie Calkins Opera House, the Temple Hoyne Buell Theater, the Helen Bonfies Temperature Theater Complex, and the Jazz Club Dazzle, among other venues. It's operated by Denver Arts and Venues, a city department. It is not the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. The DCPA is a nonprofit theater organization and tenant of the Performing Arts Complex. In fact, Suzanne Yeo, Director of Communications and Content Marketing for the DCPA, describes Denver Arts and Venues as the DCPA's landlord. Along with the DCPA, the Colorado Ballet, the Colorado Symphony, and Opera Colorado are also performing arts complex tenants. Dazzle joined that lineup this summer. Denver Center for the Performing Arts is one of four companies that rents space at the arts complex, Yo explains. According to Brian Kitts, spokesperson for Denver Arts and Venues, the performing arts complex venues themselves do not accept cash, only cards. That has been the case for a while, he adds. The cashless system went away partly for safety reasons and partly because of the way demographics pay for things now. Kitts explains that cashless situation is allowed under the 2021 cash law if businesses have what is called a reverse ATM. Those machines allow people to feed in cash and get a card back that can then be used at a technically cashless space. The arts complex is getting one to prepare for the busy winter months of November and December. The exact location for the reverse ATM hasn't yet been determined but the plan is to locate it near the information center, centrally located in the complex's open space galleria, which would make it accessible to all of the venues there. Red Rocks and Denver Coliseum have had these in place for some time, and the arts complex aims to have a unit installed by the holiday season, says Josh Lenz, marketing and communications manager with Arts and Venues. Music fans can also purchase Red Rocks tickets with cash on Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Denver Coliseum box office. The Performing Arts Complex's most well-known resident, the DCPA, accepts cash for tickets to its shows. I can confirm that we do accept cash for ticket sales for shows that are presented or produced by DCPA Broadway, DCPA Cabaret, DCPA Theater Company, DCPA Off Center, and DCPA Theater for Young Audiences, Yo says. It has a permanent box office in the Helen Bonfies Theater Complex, located at 1050 13th Street, that's open Tuesday through Saturday from noon to 6 p.m. People can buy tickets with cash in person there. Then, when one of our productions plays in a different venue, Buell, 
Ellie, Garner Galleria, etc., we set up a box.